Please be seated. <clears throat> well, it's been a few weeks now that I've been praying about kind of how to um, express what I feel like is a great need in our body right now. I mean, it's, 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 the need is always there, but I mean, it seems like that with areas that people are struggling in, leadership becomes aware of it, and we start thinking about uh, what, may, what, what the body may need to hear, what we may need to hear as well as, as, as leaders. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about the subject of grace, and I want to talk about how grace affects our walk, because it greatly affects our walk. It's the foundation in many ways of our walk. And so it seems like lately there have been those that have been struggling that it, it seems like we've been having lots of discussions with people about the, what God's grace is and how to apply God's grace to our lives and so forth to help get their walk where it needs to be. And, you know, all of us need God's grace, of course, to know about it, to grow in it and so forth. And so often we think of God's grace, we think of, well, that's how we get saved, you know, and I, whenever we got saved, that's when I experienced God's grace. Or when we think about it, we mainly think about it in terms of receiving salvation because it's by grace we've been saved through faith, right? So, but when we look at the New Testament, we see that God mentions a lot more. <laughs> he talks about grace a lot more than just coming to Christ. In fact, the main proportion of content related to grace in the New Testament has everything to do with, with our lives subsequent to receiving Christ, I mean, you could just go so many different directions and think about how he's in, 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 uh, encouraged us to go into the throne room of grace. He says, grace be with your spirit at the end of one book, uh, Paul does. He, he, greets, he, he greets them with grace and peace. I mean, he says that, that, that he was weak at one point with a thorn in the flesh, and God said, my grace is sufficient for you. I mean, he, there's so many instances in the New Testament where he talks about grace in our lives. And so we're, we get kind of limited uh, because we think of it sometimes in, only in relation to coming to Christ. And so today we're going to get a big old dose of the grace of God. And I'm excited about it because I need to hear God's grace over and over and over again because he's renewing our minds related to it. So, you know, just get ready for a lot of grace because that's, that's what God wants to pour out on us. That's where he's directed my heart. Now, Paul tells us in verse 1 that these Galatians need to stand fast, therefore, in the liberty which, which Christ has made us free. So he tells them to stand fast. Now, this isn't the first time that the Apostle Paul has instructed somebody related to standing fast. It's all through the New Testament, to stand fast. He says at the end of 1 Corinthians, watch, therefore, stand fast in the faith. Then later he said to the church of Philippi, he said in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. And then he told the church of Thessalonica in chapter 3, verse 6 and 7 and 8, he said, Therefore, uh, he said, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. And then lastly, you may remember in Ephesians chapter 6, when the Apostle Paul is describing the armor of God, 
that we're supposed to stand in. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore. It's a lot of standing he's talking about. What's that mean? What's it mean to stand fast? How do I do it? And how does it to relate to the grace of God? That's what we're going to see. Standing fast means to be immovable, unshakable. And, and it, they would know exactly what the Apostle Paul was saying to them because that term was, was a common term related to warfare and to the military. The Roman military had uh, armor, as he goes over or alludes to a little bit in Ephesians chapter 6, and that armor was to protect them. And one of the things they had was a shield. And what they would do is they would lock their shields with one another's shields. And what that would do was it would, it would add uh, protection, of course, because they're shielded, you know, and they can make a, a wall or go around in a circle uh, if they needed to. But also the weight of those shields all interconnected created a very heavy uh, kind of wall and that they were, they were holding on to these shields. And because of that, they had a firm footing. And, and I think that's where we get the term hunker down. You, know, you hunker down and you, you hold fast, you stay exactly where you've been planted. So he's bringing up imagery that they'd be familiar with. And so he's saying spiritually, you need to stand fast. You need to be spiritually immovable. And Paul is trying to get them to be really doctrinally immovable. Because he told them the truth about how to be saved and and the grace of God and all those things. But then people have come in and they've taught them something uh, to the contrary. And our doctrine affects how we live. What we believe about God, the truths about God, those things just aren't in the realm of the theoretical. Those things affect how we live, the, the, the day in and day out living for God. And, and, and so the Apostle Paul knew the danger they were in because they were starting to go a direction that, that uh, God never intended related to how they saw God and how salvation is, is secured. So he originally told them all about grace. And so these Judaizers had come in, these, these so-called Teachers, they were false teachers, and they came in and they wanted to add to uh, the cross, basically. They wanted to say, yeah, it's great that you believe in Jesus. It's great that you've accepted Christ, but you need to also do these other things. You need to become circumcised, you need to, which was a covenant, which is a sign of the covenant that with, between God and, and, and man, and that you were saying, I'm entering into that old covenant that we refer to as the old covenant. Back then there wasn't, you know, it was just the covenant. And so it was a symbol that, that you were submitting yourselves to Judaism. And so um, in Judaism, this, this circumcision was very important. And they were, th- these, these people that had this Jewish background, it was very difficult for them to believe that they didn't have to, to seek after obeying the law of Moses to try to earn their way to heaven anymore, even though God never intended it to be for that. And, and so for them, they were trying to make Gentiles the Jews, basically. They were saying, you know, you're, you're just like us in the sense that you're receiving the Messiah, but you need to become like how we used to be and become kind of like Jews. And, and so that was very, very um, difficult for Gentiles to think about. See, if you wanted to become a Jew, if you were a Gentile, if you wanted to become a Jew, a full-on proselyte, you had to become circumcised. And that kept a lot of Gentiles as you can imagine, it kept a lot of Gentiles from going that direction. So they, they could go really far without becoming a, you know, without being circumcised. They could be a God-fearer. You may remember Cornelius in the book of Acts. 
He was likely a God-fearer. He probably wasn't a proselyte, hadn't been circumcised, wasn't obeying all the feasts and so forth, but he was a God-fearer. And so that was kind of their, their option. So here, the, 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 these believers that have already received Christ, they've already received a right standing with God, now they're going backwards and trying to think that they can earn some standing or some you know, place with God if they add circumcision and add trying to obey the law of Moses. So he says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And I want you to notice the two words made us there in verse 1. He made us free. We didn't earn to him making us free. He made us free. He declared us free. He declared us righteous when we accepted Christ. And he made us free from the bondage of sin. But he says that's not what's happening to them in terms of what they're going back to. It says, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Notice he says entangled again with a yoke of bondage. See, the believers here in these Galatian churches that Paul's writing to were comprised of both Jew and Gentile. Some of them were Jews, some of them were Gentiles. And yet Paul could say to both groups, do not be entangled again. Now, how could he say that? Because the Gentiles that were there, they never tried to obey the law of Moses. So how could he say that? Well, it doesn't matter if you're under the law of Moses or not. When you're trying to earn God's acceptance and love by your performance, it's a yoke of bondage. Whether you're trying to use the law of Moses to please him by your performance, or you're trying to use your conscience, or some other moral code that you're making up, it's amazing how people just kind of make it up as they go. They make up this moral code, and it usually lines up with what they can accomplish, not realizing that the standard is perfection. And so here he comes and says, don't be entangled again uh, related to this yoke of bondage. You may remember at what's called the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 that they were discussing this very issue related to uh, if Gentiles need to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. I want to read the account to you. It says in Acts 15, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, you know, there's, when there's Jews involved, there's, dis- I mean, they say two Jews, three opinions. I mean, they're, you know, they're fighting over uh, this thing. They, they don't, they're not just shy and just say their opinion a little bit here and there. They are very vocal and very passionate about what they believe. So after much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring to the house of Cornelius. When God spoke to him when he was on the roof uh, there in Joppa and God gave him a vision and showed him that he needs to go to, to uh, Cornelius's house there in Caesarea and he went up there and preached the gospel. Before he could finish preaching, they received Christ, were baptized with the Holy Spirit and now he's having to give an account before the leaders in Jerusalem about what had happened. So he says, it happened through me. And then he said, so God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God? And that's noteworthy. Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. So here Peter is admitting that 
that trying to earn a right standing with God by the law of Moses is a heavy yoke and it's unbearable. He says it's unbearable. We nor our fathers were unable to bear this yoke. And so these believers were going in that direction and Paul needed to stop it. I mean, he needed to stop it. As an apostle, as their shepherd, he needed to put an end to it. And so he gets very direct. And we see that in verses 2 and 3. He says, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. So for our purposes, in verse 2, when we see the word circumcision or any other time in this passage, It translates into adding to the cross, doing religious works that adds to the cross. You know, sometimes I'll say to people that have issues with God just forgiving people and and they, they want to add something to it. I said, picture yourself going back in a time machine and standing in front of Christ on that cross and saying, I'm sorry, this isn't good enough, Jesus. Because 2,000 years from now, I'm going to have to do this and this and this and this to earn a right standing with you. Would you be willing to do that? Could you say that to the Lord Jesus? And they usually say, no, I could, couldn't say that. But that's what you're saying when you're saying that you, ha- you can add to what he's done on that cross. There's a reason why he said it is finished. It's because that redemptive work was completed on that cross. So they were, they were going to this extreme by trying to obey the law of Moses and adding to the cross to try to get salvation. Now, most of us would not believe that. Because you might be thinking, well, what does that do with me? I know that I'm saved by grace, and so why would you be bringing all of this up? But see, we do something really similar to it, or, or it's not as extreme in terms of thinking that we can earn salvation, but we kind of do it in how we relate to God and how we see him see us, and, and it's very unhealthy, and that's what I want to talk about. Because we can relate to God erroneously by our spiritual performance, and we can think that he relates to us by our lack of performance or our good performance. And so when I'm doing good spiritually, we can think he thinks well of me. When I'm doing bad spiritually, I I can think that he doesn't think well of me. And so we can think, yeah, he blesses me, but he kind of does it begrudgingly. Like, all right, I'll bless them. You know, I said it, I'd do it in my word, so I'm going to live up to my word, and so I'm going to do it, and I don't want to, but I'm going to bless them, and, you know, because they haven't been doing well, and so forth, and, and so it can carry over to how I engage him, because I can be afraid. Remember in the Garden of Eden, when they, when they sinned, they hid. See, they didn't, even though they walked with him without a sinful nature, they didn't know him well enough to know that they didn't have to hide from him. That he loved them. Even though there's sin and he can't deal with sin and so forth, he had a solution for sin already. And so they hid from him. And we do the same thing. We'd rather not engage him because we kind of think he's just tolerating us. And that he's probably going to send some hardship in my life to settle things up with me. He's going to get even with me. That's not biblical. That hurts the growth that he wants to produce in my life. It's a complete lie that... That, and it's so easy for us to fall for that. I remember early in my Christian walk, 20 years ago, I was at a church where there was some of this stuff. Not, they weren't saying that you have to do these things to be saved. They were just saying that to be in good standing with God, even though you are a Christian, to be in good standing, you have to do these certain things and not do these other things. And if you fail in those areas, then somehow God is looking at you a little bit differently and, uh, you know, it, and some people would even say that he's, you know, against you now. 
And that affected me as a new believer. It stifled some of my growth. And I remember being in uh, Sunday school. They had college and career Sunday school at that church. And I remember the youth pastor said, we're going to do something different. We're not going to teach topically at this point. We're going to start going through the book of Galatians verse by verse. I'm like, okay, that's cool. I didn't know you could do that, you know, and started learning about the grace of God. It was revolutionary for me. It was revolutionary for me. My first sermon ever was in that youth group. My first, it's, it's a tape of that somewhere, unfortunately. Uh, but I talked about the grace of God, and it was scandalous. There was a, 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 a woman who was uh, the parent of one of the children in the youth group. She's in the balcony. She was so mad. She was shaking her head. I mean, I'm, I get kind of used to that as a preacher. You can see people going, and yeah, it's not a good sign when you see that. It's not, you know, you're not really getting through. Uh, but she was really doing that. I mean, she was just, she was mad. She came up to me afterward. How dare you? You know, this is going to be licensed. They're going to they're think they have a license to sin. And it's been said, if, you're, if you haven't been accused as a preacher of preaching license, you probably haven't taught enough about the grace of God. And that's probably true. And so that's the thing we don't understand. We think that if we teach God's grace, that that's going to be license for sin. But when you understand God's grace, you understand his goodness and how he is towards us, you, you want to sin less because you don't want to grieve his heart because you love him and you care for him. You don't want to hurt his, his heart, and especially in light of everything that he's done for us. So here Paul comes in and he says, if you think that you can earn some kind of standing or add to your standing here, you have to, you're a debtor to keep the whole law. All 613 commandments. You know, James tells us if we sin in one point of the law, we're guilty of all of it. And there's this fallacy, there's this goofy thing we can do in our mind where we can think that somehow there can be this hybrid version that I can believe that I'm saved by grace and that God deals with me uh, you know, by his grace, but at the same time, he deals with me on my performance and he sees me and, and treats me a certain way and looks at me or loves me a certain way based on my performance. And, and I, we make this weird hybrid in our head. It doesn't exist. Paul says here, if you're going to do that, then you got to go all the way. You're going you're, you're to live all by the law or you're going to live all by grace. And so if we're struggling in that, likely we're trying to do this hybrid thing. But he says it, it can't be that way. It's all grace or it's all law. Take your pick. I want, to, I want it to be all grace. I want to receive all grace and have God deal with me on the basis of his grace. You know, when he looks at us, it's not like he looks through these glasses and, and, and he sees us completely in how our practical holiness is lived out. He sees us through the righteousness of Christ. He sees that perfection that's been applied to our account. It's really a legal accounting uh, way of describing it. He's, he's put the righteousness of Christ to our ledger. And so now there's no debts and there's, it's all credits. It's all deposits and it's, it's the righteousness of Christ, the blood of Christ put to our account. He sees us through that and he always sees us through that. There's not a time where he doesn't, he doesn't take off the glasses, say, now I'm seeing you fully with your practical holiness alone. It never happens. He sees us through our positional standing with him. So it's important for us to see that. Now look at the results of all of this in verse 4. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. We hear that term a lot, fallen from grace. You know, the media likes to bring it up when someone that claims to be a believer struggles, or they've fallen from grace. This it comes from the Bible, but he's not talking about them, you know, apostatizing or anything like that. Some people would say that that doesn't that's not true at all. It contradicts other scripture here. 
They're believers. They're, they're, they love the Lord. They're just relating to him in a different way that's not healthy. And what it's saying is that, you know, what, what happens when you're estranged? You know, we just got done going through the, the holiday, uh, the Christmas, and sometimes we are in family environments where things are strained, and there's something in between us and someone else, and even though on our end we, we've tried to make everything right, on their end there's something there, and there's this, this something in between them and us in terms of our relationship, and that's kind of what he's getting to here. Because estranged means to no longer be affectionate or, or, or that we're alienated, in a sense, from, from someone. So he says, you have become. Notice the word become. They started out well. They, didn't always, they weren't always estranged. They started out well. They became something because they allowed false teaching to come in into their midst. And he says, you who attempt to be justified, that means acquitted, by law, you have fallen from grace. It's interesting here, it says you have fallen from grace. It's like the understanding, the realization of, of, of God's grace is a high place. It's like a mountaintop experience. You know, when you first receive Christ and you realize, you mean I get eternal life free? It's not something I have to earn and you just, you can't believe it. It's, I get it even though I don't deserve it. And it's a mountaintop experience. It's a place of strength. You know, when you're in the military, you want the high ground, right? And he's saying, you have fallen from somewhere great. You have fallen from a realization of how God deals with you. You have fallen from grace. It's a beautiful thing to, to, to know that God is dealing with us based on who he is and not based on what we're doing or, or what we're lack, the lack of what we're doing. He sees me and relates to me based on him and not me. And we forget that we're his children, those of us that know him. We're his children. What if your child came to you and was very insecure because they've messed up a lot and they didn't really want to be around you because they think that they thought that you didn't want to be around them or didn't want to talk to them, that would break your heart as a parent. And God is infinitely more loving than we could ever be. And so that when we go away from him, because a misunderstanding of God's grace, we go away from him instead of going to him. When you understand God's grace, when you fall, you fall towards him. You fall in his direction. And, and then because of that, he prevents you from going in a downward spiral. And, and so that's what we need to understand, that he sees us as a son or a daughter. He says, that's my daughter, not that's my daughter who's doing well, or that's my daughter who's not doing well right now. He doesn't add that on. He just says, you're my daughter. You're my son. I love you because, I, because of who I am, not based on what you're doing or what you're not doing. You couldn't get me to not love you if you tried. If you spent the rest of your life trying to get me to not love you, you couldn't succeed. That anchors our soul. That's the place from which we grow. And if we don't understand that, then we're going to go the other direction and we're not going to grow because we have to grow in uh, that grace. So the solution is for us to grow in grace. And 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us that. You want to turn there real quick. In 2 Peter, he says in chapter 3, uh, verse 17 and 18. No, really, you can turn there. It's okay. You can. I'm excited to get to it. I'm like, I got to pause for you to get there, but I want to get there. So I'm waiting patiently. I'm hearing pages turn. That's a good sign. 2 Peter 3. I love this. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, 
Beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. That's another way of saying standing fast. Being led away with the air of the wicked. Now verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. You can turn back to Galatians 5. What's interesting here is that Peter's the one that the Holy Spirit chose to wrote that to write that. And we just got done going through 1 Peter. We looked at a biography of his life a little bit before we even started the book. We know that Peter was, was focused a lot on himself. He related to Jesus in many ways by looking about who he was and what he had to offer. You know, the disciples were fighting who's the greatest. That's kind of a self-focus, I would say, <laughs> you know. And so who's the greatest? I'm sure Peter would make the best case. Well, I'm the one that said, you know, uh, that, you know that, that, that you're the Messiah, the, the, the one that came from, from above. And, and the Lord Jesus said that, you know, I'm blessed because, uh, and then the disciples finished his sentence, because you didn't, you received this from the Father, not because you came up with it. And by the way, didn't you, weren't you called Satan a little while later after that, Peter? I mean, you could just hear the disciples going, that's what I would have said, <laughs> you know, uh, and I'm sure they, they're not any more carnal than I am. But Peter was, was, was focused on himself. He related to Jesus based on who he was and what he could do. And that's why he would say, though they all deny you, I will never deny you. And that's why he would say, you know, these, these things, you know, you can't wash my feet, Jesus. No, not me. You can wash all their feet. There's a different set of rules for me. I'm focused on myself and how, how I deserve this or don't deserve this. He says, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can't have any part of me. You have to be just like all the other disciples. You can't see yourself above them. You're the same as them. So Peter needed to be humbled. He needed to be broken. And that's why when he denied the Lord three times, he was in great need of what? God's grace. God's grace was the healing balm that restored Peter. Because did Peter deserve to be restored? No. Did Peter, would Peter have restored himself? Peter would never have been the guy that would have restored someone just like him. But he got restored. And God extended that grace. Jesus applied grace to Peter's heart. And, and, and Peter was restored publicly. Jesus also said that he would live a long life, that when he was old, that, that they would lead him to a place he didn't want to go. He, he told him he was going to die a martyr's death, and so he gave him a lot of grace. So grace applied to the heart causes us to be more attracted to Jesus. Think about that for a moment. Grace applied to the heart causes us to be more attracted to Jesus. When you're more attracted to Jesus, do you go away from him more, or do you go towards him more? Towards him. And when you go towards him, what happens? He changes our hearts. He makes us more, more holy in a practical way. He causes growth. So he knows that. So as we see him deal with us graciously, then it causes us to fall in love with him more. That makes us want to sin less because we know it grieves his heart. And he died for those sins and so forth. So we have to understand that his love doesn't change. His acceptance does not change based on my performance. He loves me because he is love. He treats me like a son or daughter, not merely a servant. And that frees us. He wants us free. If we're bound by our lack of performance and our failures, we're never going to get down the road of growth. There are Christians that have walked with him for 30-something years, 40 years, who haven't grown very much because they can't stop relating to God based on their performance. 
their failures or their, and, and God just says, you need to just stop it. And I'll bring you and I'll pr- progress you and I'll, I'll grow you and I'll free you because it's bondage. Verse 5. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Paul says we, he includes himself. He says through the Spirit, that's dependence upon the Spirit, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. What's he talking about? He's already received salvation. What's, this, what's he talking about? He's talking about growing in, 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 in holiness. He's gonna, he knows he's going to grow in holiness in this life as he trusts in the Spirit to bear fruit through his life, then one day he's going to get a new body and he's going to have the capacity to be even more righteous because he won't have a sinful nature. And so he says, that's what you need to do. Instead of focusing on yourself, through focus on yourself, you're, 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 you're looking at how you relate to God and how he relates to you. You need to focus on him. Verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. It doesn't, circumcision, again, it's all talking about religious works and our performance. It's all synonymous. And, and so he says, it doesn't avail anything. Now, the question arises, well, I thought works were important to God. You know, Pat, you went through uh, James. We heard you talk, read the scripture that said, you know, faith without works is dead. It's important. But what's your motivation for works? And who are you trusting in to do the work? If you're trusting in yourself to do the work, then you're, not, you're offering that which is not pleasing to God. Our, our, our righteousness is like filthy rags, we're told in Isaiah. So if we're trying to do works to try to earn something with him in terms of how he sees us, how he deals with us, and so forth, then it avails nothing. But if we are trusting in him, abiding in him, letting him bear fruit through our lives, and then we're engaged in these works to glorify him and to worship him, then it avails something. And he said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he's created us in Christ Jesus for those type of good works, that he will be glorified through our lives. So all that matters is faith working through love, faith in him, expressing ourselves by that, or in that faith by expressing love for him, love expressed through obedience, love expressed through serving, love expressed through blessing his people that he loves so much. And so how I relate to God and how he believe, I believe he relates to me and so forth, it's supposed, it's supposed to uh, be healthy related to how we see him and, and be an expression of, of his grace. Because in the face of failures, in the, in the face of imperfections, in the face of our sin, he, he still loves me. And he loves me as if I'm sinless. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that he loves you as if you're sinless? Because that's true. He sees you sinless, positionally in Christ. He doesn't see all the other things and dwell on those other things. He knows that you're progressing. He knows that you're getting more and more holy practically. That's his aim and so forth. But when he sees you, he sees you and deals with you on the basis of his grace because of who he is, not because on who you are. He's gracious. He's loving. So that's why he deals with us that way. And notice Paul says something probably very difficult for him to say in verse 7. He says, you ran well. Who hindered you? Notice that's all past tense. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? They didn't start out not accessing or ap- um, apprehending God's grace. They started out well, but they ran a certain way and then they stopped running. <laughs> they stopped running well. They probably started walking or standing spiritually. He's saying you're, you're not going forward. You ran well, that happened, but now you're being hindered. And the word hindered is the word they would use to encumber something. And to, to like trip you up. So he's saying you were running, someone threw something around your legs. 
Who did that? He doesn't know who it is. I, I'm telling you, I believe that he would be naming their names if he knew their name. He's so upset about it and the damage it was causing to these uh, believers. And then he says something, verse 8, that's really powerful. He says, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. It's a persuasion. They were persuaded a certain way because they weren't grounded in God's word like they should have been. And it just speaks to the importance of feasting upon his word. But then he says, it does not come from him who calls you. Notice at the end of verse 8, the word calls is in the present tense. He doesn't say that it doesn't come from him who called you, which is still true. He did call them. But it's a present tense call. He's called, they're being called to right now by the Lord. In, despite their, their going backwards. And it's a beautiful thing because he's still calling us to himself even when we're not doing well. Now he gets to the cancerous aspect of legalism in verse 9. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know, so yeast, it penetrates and and is pervasive, I should say, through the whole loaf of bread. And and it's cancerous. And it does affect us. Legalistic views can spread. And, and, and the flesh loves to feel that it's doing something, bringing something to the table related to our relationship with him. And he's saying, be careful about that. Then he says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord. Not, not, it's very important he adds those three words. In the Lord, that you will have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. In other words, again, it's all or none. It's either law, all law, or all grace with the cross. He's saying, if I were still preaching circumcision, I wouldn't be suffering right now. I'm not preaching that anymore. I'm preaching the cross. It's an offense to people, and thus I suffer as a result. And then he says, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. This is pretty harsh. I mean, Paul has a shepherd's heart. He's saying, you know, these, these, these false teachers, they're teaching, uh, you know, circumcision. I wish they'd go all the way with themselves and, you know, be punished for what they're doing. I mean, that's just, that's, the, that's what he's saying. I'm, you know, it's the Bible. I'm teaching it. So, uh, it's, but it's, it's God's heart in terms of his anger towards people that are misleading people and hurting their walk with him. So if you fall, fall towards him. When you sin, his love and acceptance of you hasn't changed one bit He's not any less for us because we failed or we have sinned. And we can't make up for our sin with good works. Well, you know, I did bad on Wednesday. So Thursday, I'm going to have a four-hour devotional time. And I'm going to read my daily. I'm going to read like four months worth of our daily bread. You know, and I'm going to witness to people. I'm going to make up for what. Because somehow he's, he's keeping track of all that. And I want, to, I want to make sure that he knows that, you know, that, that I care about what he thinks about me. And, all, and that's just a trap. You can't do that. He wants, he loves you unconditionally. It, he, you can't change it even if you wanted to. When does God find out about our sin? You ever think about that? After we commit it or when we commit it? No. He knew about that. He's all-knowing. He knew about that from eternity past. And the sins that we have committed, he's already paid for. The sins we haven't even committed yet have been paid for. So he's not looking at it going, oh no, look what so-and-so has done. I'm, I can't, you know, I'm shocked. He's not shocked. He doesn't like it, of course, but he's not shocked. He knew that when he died for us. He knew that when he saved us. And so don't let the, our, your failure get in the way of going forward with him. Fall towards him. 
fall towards him. The enemy wants to isolate us away from the rest of the body of Christ and, and, and the things of the Lord when we fail because we don't want to be a hypocrite. But the thing is, when you're being honest with what your, what your failures are and you're confessing those things and so forth, you're not being a hypocrite. It's when you come and you're around God's people and you have willful disobedience going on and you act like that's not happening, that's hypocrisy. But when you fail and you confess that and you, 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 can, you can repent and so forth, then we need to be right like nothing ever stopped. I mean, nothing ever happened. If you, if you sinned horribly on Saturday night, would you come around God's people on Sunday morning? If the answer is no, that you don't, you don't fully understand grace like you should. Especially, I mean, I mean, in light of you repenting and all that, I'm not talking about, you know, willful disobedience and all that. I'm talking about you've repented, you've confessed that sin, you've asked for forgiveness. Well, you should be right back to where, where you were before. And, and, and it's not hypocrisy. One of the interesting things when you study the New Testament is when you see all the ways that God persevered with with, uh, did I say the New Testament? I meant the whole Bible. When you, in the whole Bible, when you see God be gracious with people, even in light of their failures. I mean, I, that's one of the reasons why I love the Bible. It tells the truth about man. And it tells truth about Israel's history and all the ones that God greatly used. They weren't perfect. Look at Hebrews 11. When we went through that, those people in that, in that chapter, that are in that chapter, there's so many of them were so flawed and sinned. And, and usually they sin in the areas of their, of their strength. And that's usually what happens because we get self-dependent and we don't trust him and so forth. So we see, you know, David be called a man after my own heart who, who will do all my will. Paul said that in Acts 13 when he's quoting what, how God had a heart for David. Did, did David really do all his will? I mean, God is being gracious and using him, knowing how he's going to fall, knowing how he's going to fall short. And, and God... He's not winking at sin, but he's saying, I'm, I'm greater than all of your failures. And, and you're, you don't have to be perfect to serve me. You're going to fall short. Because you know what happens when we don't have a good, solid foundation on grace? The first thing, characteristic, is that we can have no peace. Because our, our walk is like this. God doesn't want our walk like this. See, he's constant. So if our walk is based on him who's constant, then our walk should be, you know, like this, steady and, and going upwards as we grow. And so there's no peace in knowing that, oh, when I, when I sin, I, I don't have any confidence before him and so forth. There's no peace in that. But also there's very little growth. Again, I mentioned it before. It's hard to grow when you're going back to square, to step one all the time. Another thing, like I said, you isolate. And again, that's one of Satan's primary tactic. Get us isolated away from the body of Christ. But also another, another uh, you know, implication of not having a solid foundation of grace is that we're not gracious with other people. If you've accepted God's grace and you are walking and growing in grace, you're very gracious with other people because you know how gracious he's been with, with you. And so that's, that's something he doesn't want for us. He wants us to be gracious with people because he wants us to represent God's heart to the world. And if we're not gracious with people, then we're not representing God's heart because he is gracious. But also he, we grieve God's heart. Because he wants us to grow. He loves us. We're his children. He wants us to grow in our walk with him. In the future, we're going to be growing related to understanding God's grace, even into eternity. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7 says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the ages to come. He might show the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Even with our new bodies. 
We're going to be learning about his grace, learning about how wealthy he is related to his grace. And we're going to need it then, even in our new bodies, we're going to need to learn those things. And that's exciting because there's no limit. We can't exhaust understanding how how gracious God is because he's infinite. And so, yes, we're saved by grace, but man, that's just the beginning of understanding about God's grace. That's why Paul is saying all the way through the New Testament, grace and peace to you, and may grace be with your spirit, and so forth. We're we're called to grow in our understanding of God's grace. As I close, I want to read a few quotes from Pastor Chuck's autobiography. It's called A Portrait, or no, it's called A Memoir of Grace, and it's in our equipping library. It's really good. He has this little section in there where he quotes from another passage, and I just want to read a, a few of them. They're scandalous scandalous quotes about grace you know uh here's a few this is this is three or four that have to do with a proper attitude of a person under grace and the first quote is this to believe and to consent to be loved while unworthy is the great secret think about that to believe and to consent to be loved while unworthy is the great secret consent to be loved that's what it is We're agreeing, we're allowing him to love us even though we're unworthy. That's accepting God's grace. When we won't receive his love because we think we're unworthy or because we haven't done good enough things or we've failed, then we haven't fully understood his grace and how he wants to love us. We have to be comfortable with letting him love us with all of our sin, all of our shortcomings, all of our failures because he knows them anyway. Number two, to expect to be blessed, though realizing more and more lack of worth. I love Pastor Chuck when he has said so many times, I, because, because it's all based on God's grace, I expect God to bless me. Can you say, and can I say, I expect God to bless me. If you say no, it's, we, we're, we're, we need to grow more in God's grace, understanding of it, because it's based on who he is, and he wants to bless us. He loves us. It's not based on anything that we do or don't do. So to expect to be blessed, though realizing more and more our lack of worth in terms of in our, in our own flesh. Number three, to be certain of God's future favor, yet to be more tender in conscience toward him. Wow. To be certain of God's future favor, yet be ever more tender in conscience toward him. Very, very important because we can be... Uh, completely certain of God's future favor because he's not going to change. If it's based on us, we don't know if he's going to give us favor because we don't know how we're going to be. But if it's based on who he is, we can be absolutely certain that we'll be blessed and have his favor because it is based on him. And because of that, my conscience toward him gets more and more sensitive and I want to please him because of who he is. Number four, to rely on God's chastening hand as a mark of his kindness. Instead of thinking, well, he's just punishing me because of what I did and what I didn't do. No, God's chastening hand is a mark of his kindness because we know with those of us that have children, we discipline them because we love them. We're not getting even, or at least we shouldn't be trying to get even with our kids. I'm going to get him for that. No, we do it for corrective purposes. And God chastens those that he loves, we're told in Hebrews chapter 12. So it's an expression, it's a mark of his kindness towards us, not trying to hurt us because we didn't do well that day or, or, or at another time. Now he has this other section with two things that it has more, but I just want to mention a couple. Things which gracious souls discover. Number one, real devotion to God arises not from man's will to show it, 
but from the discovery that blessing has been received from God while we were yet unworthy. So real devotion to God arises not from my will to show it doesn't originate in me, but from the discovery that blessing has been received from him and even in the face of me being unworthy. That's a great thing that we discover as we grow in the understanding of God's grace. And then this last one. To preach devotion first and blessing second is to reverse God's order and preach law, not grace. The law made man's blessing depend on devotion. Grace confers undeserved, unconditional blessing. Our devotion may follow, but does not always do so in proper measure. That's that's an amazing quote right there. Because the law was dependent upon our devotion. It was was man-centered. And that the idea behind it was to show us that we are flawed and sinful and we need a Savior. So that when the Savior came, when he offered us a free gift, we would just receive it and realize it's impossible for me to ever earn this. And, and so that's a great thing. to. So I just wanted to mention those quotes because they were a blessing to me. You know, grace, just the understanding of it, going from our head to our heart, it takes a long time to, 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 to grow in that. And again, I mentioned we're going to be going through all eternity, <laughs> you know, growing in, in knowing about the riches of his grace. So let's allow dependence on God's grace to help us to stand fast, to help us to lock shields with one another to be able to stand firm in our walk with him, hold our ground, be unmovable. And when we sin, let's aggressively go to him, not away from him. He knows that he knows we were going to do that. Well, did he cause it? No, he didn't cause it. Well, well, if he knew it, then why didn't he stop me? And all that we get into all this philosophical, he gave us a free will. And And so he doesn't want us to sin. But when we fall short, he wants us to go to him. Doesn't it bless you as a parent when your son or daughter they, they sin and they do something and the, 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 the time between the time that they're restored by your forgiveness and the time that they come and embrace you and have confidence in your love gets shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And that's how it should be for us with our Father. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for your great grace, Lord. Thank you for that wonderful grace that we get to bask in We know that so many of us, Lord, are needing more and more revelation of it. And we need help in you applying that grace to our hearts. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us now as we sing this song to you, Lord. Help us, Lord, to help us, Lord, to process all these things that you've spoken us to about, Lord, and help us to be able to 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 confess the things we need to confess and express our trust and our faith in you that you're going to to help us as we learn more about who you are. Because we know, Lord, that you've applied lots of grace to our lives. Lord, and we know that you have revealed who you are more and more as you've done that. And, And you have become more attractive to us. Help us to fall in love with you more and go closer to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.